Welcome back to the ITK podcast. I'm UK and let's get right into the show. Fumi garnered gratitude and admiration on the side of those whom her actions liberated and uplifted. She had become an edifice of hope and a figure whom the disenfranchised looked up to for inspiration and motivation. Those whom her actions affected directly had one of two feelings for her, either contempt or love, but both camps surely had respect for her. After the celebrated triumph over the sitting Alake, Fumi began to adopt an explicitly anti-colonial position. She did not believe that an end to colonialism would completely resolve the problems of women and other disenfranchised groups, as she was equally critical of those elements of traditional culture that she felt oppressed women. She was particular about liberating the oppressed and had no regard for what shape the oppressor took, be it colonialism or tradition. Under her leadership, and utilizing both indigenous and important means of protest, the AWU began to articulate not only an anti-colonial position, but one that sought to democratize government and establish women's equality. The AWU adopted the motto, Unity, Cooperation, Selfless Service, and Democracy. They also included in their constitution, under the title Aims and Objectives, that they were going to unite women to defend, protect, preserve, and promote social, economic, and political rights and interests of women, and to cooperate with all organizations seeking and fighting genuinely and selflessly for the economic and political freedom and independence of the people. The organization issued membership cards signed by Fumi herself, and under her name was the title Iyaigbe, which means Mother of the Society. The AWU, spearheaded by Fumi, focused first on the issue of taxation, but early on, they developed a comprehensive list of demands that included complete abolition of the flat rate taxation of women, elimination of the SNA system, and institution of a more representative system of governing, including, of course, the representation of women. Notably, the AWU did not simply call for the overthrow of existing arrangements, but made concrete suggestions for what would replace them. For instance, the organization employed an accountant to audit the sole native authority's treasure books and based on the audit, severely criticized SNA expenditures and submitted a detailed alternative budget. In analyzing the budget, the AWU particularly criticized the investment of Egba treasury funds in British stock, pointing out that to loan to other countries at the time we are in great need of capital for local industries is part of maladministration. In place of the flat rate tax on women, the organization proposed increasing taxes on expatriate companies using royalties from the quarries which the companies were already heavily exploiting. The AWU was well organized. Its membership included both individuals and other organizations such as the various commodity associations of market women. It included Western-educated and illiterate members, followers of Yoruba traditional religions, Christians, and Muslims. At the end of the mass demonstrations component of the women's campaign, the AWU routinely gathered at the central mosque in Abiyokuta to give thanks to Allah. Even though she was a professed Christian, Fumi had always remained open-minded in her religious outlook, so she never missed a gathering at the mosque. An executive committee 
elected by all members, served as the AWU's decision-making body. Included among his members were the President, Vice President, Secretary, Treasurer, and representatives from the major market associations and from the four districts of Abiyokuta. A number of those on the executive committee were members of Fumi's extended family. She herself served as president from the AWU's inception until her death in 1978. The women regarded Fumi with reverence, yet she had a strong personality and there were others who felt she was not democratic enough in her leadership style, though no one ever attempted to replace her. Fumi always stated that her plan was to sensitize the women enough that they would not give the authorities any excuse to attack them. She was also determined to ensure that no member of the union would think herself better than the others. All must move freely and happily together. Carrying out her goals sometimes called for serving with an iron hand. Though she possessed a body of able lieutenants in her executive committee, Fumi's dedicated, charismatic, courageous and politically savvy leadership was the mainstay of the AWU's protests. Maybe not everyone liked her methods, but they sure needed them for the results they reaped. In addition to wearing Yoruba dresses, she always spoke in the Yoruba language when addressing the women in rallies and meetings. Even when the British officials were present, she spoke in Yoruba and translated the discussions in English into Yoruba so the vast majority of non-English speaking market women would understand. The fact that Fumi spoke Yoruba and wore Yoruba dresses made the women comfortable with her and increased their trust and belief that she was empathetic and one of them. They praised her grit, but were left perplexed as to the origins of her fighter spirit and political conviction. They always wondered how Fumi got grounded enough to get confrontational, even with the foreigners. Though her first overtly political exposure out of Nigeria was in 1947, as the sole female member of the Nigerian delegation to London to protest the Richards Constitution. She had been involved in international issues long before that. The real starting point of her awareness of international women's organizations and British anti-imperialistic circles was likely the close friendship between Ladipo Solanke and Israel, her late husband. Solanke was born in Abiyokuta in 1984. He attended Oyo Training Institute and taught for some years before going to Fora Bay College in Syria alone where he obtained a bachelor's degree in 1921. He and Israel knew each other as boys and young men in Abiyokuta and were close friends. From Foray Bay, Solanke then went to England where he qualified as a barrister at law and settled in Great Britain. He experienced many hardships and frustrations as a young, self-financed West African student in England and resolved to improve the conditions of other students. This led him to form an association of West African students in London in 1925, which developed into far more than a student self-help association. It promoted nationalist anti-colonialism movement of British West Africans in England and acted as a kind of liaison between such movements and the British colonial office on the one hand and the anti-colonial movement in England on the other. The West African Student Union aimed at generating an anti-colonial consciousness both in British West Africa, among the traditional and educated elite, and among West African students in Great Britain. To raise funds for the WASU and for setting up a hostel, Solanke toured British West Africa from 1920 to 1932, holding meetings with traditional rulers, lawyers, teachers, and journalists. Among the founding members of WASU in Nigeria were Israel and Fumi, 
were residents of Ijebuode at the time. Izo founded a branch of Wasu in Ijebuode in 1929, and the Ransom Kutis were an illustrious company, as early Wasu supporters included the Alake of Abiokuta, the Emir of Kanu, and the Asantene of Ghana. The Ramson Kutis later became lifetime members of Wasu, along with Dr. Namdi Azikiwe, Chief H.O. Davies, Dr. Akinola Maja, H.A. Corsa of the Gold Coast, and Dr. E.A. Taylor Cumming of Syria Alone. From the ranks of educated elites, the Wasu recruited members who later became the leaders of the nationalist movements in West Africa. As the Nigerian historian G.O. Olusonia points out, when the National Youth Movement was formed in 1934, most of its foundation members were members of the various branches of Wasu. It is therefore obvious that the union had contributed significantly to the stimulation of political consciousness in West Africa. In England, the Wasu served to bring together West Africans in a West African association. Kwame Nkrumah and Juapia were vice presidents of the Wasu in 1946. Indeed, this may have been Nkrumah's and Fumi's first knowledge of one another. Later, as president of Ghana, Nkrumah invited her to a meeting at Flagstaff House to discuss the formation of a Ghanaian women's organization. Fumi attended its inaugural meeting and Nkrumah credited her with helping to inspire its creation. The Wasu also attracted support from blacks in the diaspora who believed in a renaissance Africa, such as the world-famous African-American actor and singer Paul Robson. Fumi also traveled a lot during this period, making efforts to connect with relevant bodies in different countries that would help open new pathways and partnerships that would facilitate her stride to achieving gender equality and women enfranchisement in her own country of Nigeria. One of her stops was Great Britain, while she was a member of the 1947 NC-NC delegation. The National Council of Nigeria and the Cameroons were very critical of the Richardson Constitution of 1946. Once the decision was made to send a delegation to England to address the constitution, members of the delegation were selected from all the political regions of Nigeria. Since the political party didn't have a women's association at the time, Fumi was seen as the ideal choice by Azikiwe to represent Nigerian women. Despite leaving the country with much fanfare and support, the delegation failed to achieve their goal of having their concerns heard by the British Parliament. There were also internal tensions within the team due to the unorganized way its activities were carried out and Azikiwe's alleged tyrannical leadership. Fumi said the following commentary about the delegation after they returned to Nigeria. Azikiwe never liked to receive suggestion from any other member of the delegation. And whenever an opinion was expressed by any other member, which might be contrary to his, he would charge that member with an attempt to usurp his position as a leader. The members of the home front will be sorry to know that the draft memorandum and constitution that was sent to the Secretary of State were drafted and signed by Dr. Azikwe alone and therefore termed and commonly referred to as one man's constitution. Fumi and Azikiwe's clashes over his leadership of the delegation strained their relationship and Azikiwe, according to Fumi, never felt comfortable around her anymore. While in England, she established contact with various women's organizations and after her visit, she was in regular correspondence with the Women's International Democratic Federation. In early 1948, 
The WIDF wrote asking if she would be willing to participate as a Nigerian delegate to an international exposition of women planned for the May of that year. Fumi declined on the grounds that she felt Wasu was ill-prepared at the moment. Later, she outrightly rescinded the offer to affiliate, but opted to join the organization as an individual. It's not clear why she felt the union was ill-prepared to send women delegates. Perhaps she believed the fallout from her recent disagreement with Namdi Azikiwe over the organization's delegation to England would have militated against such cooperation. Or possibly she felt that the WIDF's socialist orientation would have caused the union to rebuff any such invitation. Obviously, the WIDF was eager to recruit Fumi, who was one of the few radical feminist women leaders in Africa at the time. She, however, was somewhat disconcerted by the intensity and speed of WIDF contacts with her. She turned to Solanke for advice because he was one of the intermediaries through whom these contacts were first made and because he was well acquainted with the international scene. When she received an invitation to attend the WIDF Congress in China in 1949, she again sought Solanke's advice. He replied via cablegram, counseling her to ignore that particular invitation or to write them a diplomatic letter rejecting the invitation because it was communists that governed China. Solanke already had doubts about the WIDF's communist orientation, though Fumi was more curious than discouraged. In April 1956, the WIDF invited her to attend a meeting of their council in Peking, China. When she applied for her passport to be endorsed, she encountered opposition and reluctance. Nonetheless, it was endorsed and she went to China for three weeks. The visit to Peking attracted international attention. Shortly after, the London Times carried an article on the indoctrination of Africans. It cited the WIDF as a, a communist international front organization and Fumi as an example of an African being subjected to indoctrination. The Daily Worker on June 12, 1956 also had an article and a photograph of Fumi at the WIDF meeting in Peking. The Nigerian Sunday Times of June 12, 1956 also referred to the London Times article and included an interview with Fumi. She denied the accusation, saying her sole interest was to work for the enfranchisement and celebration of Nigerian women by seeing what other races had done to achieve similar results. In June 1957, she submitted her passport for renewal in order to attend another WIDF conference. But after repeated procrastination, the then Prime Minister Tafara Balewa announced in December that the government refused to renew her passport. The Women's Union denied that Fumi had any communist connections and demanded that the government halt the tendency to deny Nigerians their democratic civil rights in the name of red hunting. Balewar told the women's delegation that he would reconsider the government's decision. But on December 31st, he wrote a letter to them explaining, I still do not find myself able to recommend the renewal of Fumilaya Ransom Kuti's passport. I wish to make it quite clear to the members of the union that I have no quarrel with them. Finally, on March 3rd, 1956, Balawa made a statement in the House of Representatives explaining the government's position in an answer to the questions of J.A.O. Akonde, member for Egba North. Balawa listed the number of communist countries that Fumi had visited, quoting a statement she allegedly made in China that women in Nigeria had never ceased fighting for their rights in the last 10 years. 
He observed that quote. In the past, when it was thought that Mrs. Kuti might be the innocent victim of communist schemes, she was informed officially. But now it can be assumed that it is her intention to influence the various Nigerian women's organizations with which she is connected with communist ideas and policies. On those grounds, the government would not renew her passport. Fumi issued a public statement denying Balewa's charges and ridiculing his assumptions that because she visited communist countries, she was a communist intent on making Nigerian women communists. She asked if Balewa's visits to Egypt and Saudi Arabia made him an Arab out to Islamize Nigeria. These protests, however, did not succeed in changing the government's position, and Fumi's passport was not renewed until after independence. Then she continued her association with the WIDF, attending a conference in Budapest in 1961 and visiting Moscow, Prague, and Warsaw in 1962. In 1963, she and Margaret Ekbo, a Nigerian feminist and political activist from the Eastern region who regarded Fumi as her mentor, attended the World Congress of Women in Moscow. In 1958, Fumi had applied to the United States for a visa to attend a women's conference in San Francisco to which she had been invited. Her visa application was denied on the grounds of her alleged communist connections. In 1975, she once again applied for a visa to the United States to speak at a UN-sponsored conference on the International Women's Year. She did not receive the visa, although the reason was unclear. Fumi was also involved with the Women's International League for Peace and Freedom. By the early 60s, the WILPF reappeared in Nigeria, this time spearheaded by Fumi, who had apparently been introduced to the organization by Sam Ewerenzu, who had been a student at Pennsylvania's Lincoln University. By October 1961, the WILPF was referring interested persons in Nigeria to Fumi. On February 1st, 1961, she wrote to the WILPF Geneva section and the branch in Abiyokuta was inaugurated. A WILPF representative, Emily Simon, visited Nigeria in February 1960 at Fumi's invitation and was hosted by her in Abiyokuta. Fumi drove Simon to Lagos and on the return trip to Abiyokuta, she had a car accident in which she broke her wrist, her ankle and suffered head injuries. A few months later in June, she attended a WILPF meeting in Berlin and she stayed there to receive medical attention for the injuries suffered in the car accident. She took a break in Nigeria to recuperate and was a frequent visitor to the Kalakota Republic, Fela's establishment, and even though his music had made him a target for the Nigerian government, making being around him ever so risky, she remained close with him. On February 18, 1977, the Kalakuta Republic was surrounded by nearly a thousand armed soldiers. As usual, there were a number of people in residence, including Fumi and Fela. This raid was to be a particularly brutal one, as well as believed to have precipitated Fumi's death. According to eyewitness accounts, the soldiers armed with bayonets affixed and clubs stormed the compound without warning, ostensibly to arrest two young men who had committed a traffic violation the soldiers broke down the door and started beating people inside. Soldiers pulled Fumi, then nearly 77 years old, by her hair and threw her out the window, severely injuring her leg and causing her to go into shock. A fire ensued that destroyed the entire property. Although the army blamed the fire on an explosion of the residence generator, 
Fumi later called that a fantastic lie. Family and other close observers concurred that Fumi was never the same after the raid. Not only was her physical recovery slow, but her fighting spirit and will to live seemed to have been shaken. She remained ill for an entire year. Her foot, injured in the fall from the window, did not heal well, and she was admitted to the Lagos University Teaching Hospital and treated by an orthopedic surgeon. Her family and doctors felt she was very depressed. Just prior to the Kalakuta raid, she had gone with her son Fela to Ghana for an operation for glaucoma. After the raid, the acid pressure in her eye increased again and she was once more admitted to the hospital in Lagos. According to the account of close family members, she remained withdrawn and refused to take her medicine. The family arranged to have her transferred to Lagos General Hospital, where one of her sons, Dr. Bekolari Ramsonkuti, was the medical officer. She continued to refuse to talk or eat. Her daughter, Dolupo, a nurse, slept on the floor next to her bed. In the hospital, she is said to have moaned, Why are they doing this to us? Shortly after, Fumilayo Ramson Kuti collapsed into a coma-like state and on April 13, 1978, she died. Through contacts made in her travels, her WIDF associations and her association with the WILPF, Fumi was well informed of women's issues worldwide. Although she could likely have lived anywhere else if she wished, she chose to remain in Nigeria, living in Abiyokuta. Yet, right up to her death, she continued to be the recipient of various kinds of information, requests and invitations from women's organizations around the world. That's a wrap for this season of the podcast. Huge thanks to my writer for the season, Dose Kick. Working with him made this season a possibility. Thank you to all of my friends that chipped in to voice episodes this season. I'm so grateful. Looking forward to the break from the weekly recording and editing sessions. Now, I plan on bringing back the podcast late summer to early fall for the new season. It will definitely not be a year in between seasons again. And finally, I want to thank the listeners I have, those in the US, Canada, England, Germany, and Nigeria. Also, definitely not forgetting you listening in from Pakistan too. Until next season, I'm UK and this has been the ITK Podcast. Thank you.